Harrison gave us a, a good intro to our, our topic at hand in Daniel 4 today, and he and I didn't even talk about it. So it's, it's nice when God works that way. Before we dig into Daniel 4, you can be turning there if you'd like. Before we dig into it, though, I want to start with our memory verse of the month. So our memory verse that we have been working on is Daniel chapter 2, verse 18. Will you say this with me? Daniel 2, 18. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel 2.18. Charles Spurgeon gave an example once. He uh, talked about walking sticks. Now, these are not my walking sticks. Uh, these are courtesy of Dick. Dick is, has a good job making walking sticks. But Charles Spurgeon gave this example. He said, imagine that you've got two walking sticks. And one walking stick says to another, where have you been? Well, the one walking stick, he's been around a few trails and some relatively flat land. Nothing, nothing really spectacular. But the other walking stick, I believe this one is the Irish one. You know, he's been all over. He's seen the snowy caps of the Alps, the valleys of the Nile. And he tells the other walking stick, well, I've been everywhere. I have been to the peaks of the Alps. I've seen the snow. I've seen the desert. Well, I've been down to the valleys of the Nile. I've done it all. To which the other walking stick replies, you mean you were carried through it all? See, oftentimes in life, we are like a walking stick. And we proclaim all that we have done when it's really God who has carried us all the way. This is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn in Daniel chapter 4. So, Hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to Daniel 4. If not, please do so. We'll also put it up on the screen. And we're going to start, actually, with the good news. See, Nebuchadnezzar had a pride problem, and this comes out in the book of Daniel. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is proud and arrogant and tries to delete the God of Israel. He fails. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is pride and arrogant, and sees himself as the statue of gold. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is proud and arrogant, and tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what God can save you from me. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is proud and arrogant, and finally gets it. Let's look at the first couple of verses here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, so that we can read the end of the story at the beginning, because that's how it was written. Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! 
how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar got it at the end. But it wasn't an easy path to get there. And that's what we're going to be studying today. Things turn out in the end good for Nebuchadnezzar. But it was not easy to get there. So we're going to continue on. And we'll begin with verse 4. And let's read through verse 9 to start with. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing. The privilege that Nebuchadnezzar was given is he actually got to write part of Scripture. God used him in a powerful way. But his journey there was hard. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. So how do we start this? Where do we go? What I want you to see in these first four verses, or sorry, first nine verses, is that God desires for us to grow instead of sitting in a cycle of sin. God wants you to break the cycle of sin. Each of us have areas where we struggle to follow God. It is almost like it's hardwired into us. Actually, it is from Adam's fall. Each of us has a cycle of sin that we struggle with. God desires for us to grow instead of sitting in that cycle of sin. Nebuchadnezzar's cycle was pride. We saw it in Daniel 1. We saw it in Daniel 2. We saw it in Daniel 3. And we're going to see it here in Daniel 4. I want to tell you here and now that God wants you to grow. He wants you to break the cycle of sin. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but more than just merely paying for our sins, he gave us victory over sin. That is the hope of Christ. He didn't just save me from hell, he saved me from sin. And that's huge. Jesus died on the cross, saving from sin. He wants us to have victory. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar, and let's see where this victory eventually comes from. We're going to actually split this into two weeks, because it's a long chapter. But to start with, what I want you to see in verse 4 is the first sort of issue that many of us will encounter in our cycle with sin, and that is that prosperity can be dangerous. Prosperity can be dangerous because it breeds self-reliance and pride. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 4, we're told he was in his palace, contented and prosperous. Life was easy. Life was good to Nebuchadnezzar. Time and time again in my life, when sin rears its head, 
It's often when life is easy. Because I relax. And I turn inward. And I begin to focus on me. And what I've accomplished. I've heard the phrase, be careful about praying for patience because God might give it to you. Well, I want to tell you, be careful about praying for prosperity because you may find yourself in a world of hurt. Sin often grows when we are prosperous because we begin to rely on ourselves. We begin to say, look what I've done. Look at the empire I've built. Look at how content I am. Look at, I don't have to worry about a thing. I've got this. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar found himself. Prosperity became a temptation for self-reliance and arrogance, and Nebuchadnezzar sat in the muck. There are times when God takes steps to get our attention, and he did so for Nebuchadnezzar. There's a really sharp contrast between verse 4 and verse 5. Look at what it says. Nebuchadnezzar was in his palace, prosperous and content. He was afraid. Those things don't normally go together. He had a dream that made him afraid. He was severely troubled. Why? Because of a dream in this case. Because God was trying to get his attention. Now, I want to take a side note real quick. The normal way in which God gets your attention is not through a dream today. That is not the normal way that God's going to get your attention. John 16 gives us some help in understanding this. Uh, If you turn to John 16, verses 7 through 14, we can get just a little bit of help here. Uh, So we can understand how it is that God's going to get our attention today. In verse 7 it says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove to the world to be in the wrong. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. What Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit was coming. And now in the church age, the Holy Spirit is here. He indwells anyone who has accepted Jesus as his Savior. And the result is that God can take steps through the Holy Spirit to get our attention. God may be pushing on you, saying, break the cycle of sin. Break the cycle of sin. Break the cycle of sin. Stop it. Knock it off. The Holy Spirit works in that way. It may be internally in you. It may be somebody else that's telling you, break the cycle of sin. Get out of that muck. Get out of that dirt. God, in his love for us, takes steps to get our attention. And he did exactly that with Nebuchadnezzar. Again, I want to warn you, if you had a dream last night, it was probably the fried food or the salsa you had in the tacos speaking to you more than the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's not the normal way that God gets our attention today. 
the normal way God gets our attention is by the prodding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But God is going to try to get your attention if you're stuck in sin. And so what should we do? What's the right response? A wise person will seek godly counsel. That's what Nebuchadnezzar eventually does. He gets it right here. For all the problems Nebuchadnezzar has, eventually he tends to get things right. First of all, he goes to his not-so-wise men, and they can't help him at all. Then he goes to Daniel. A wise person will seek godly counsel when they find themselves with the God of the universe trying to get their attention. And he goes to Daniel. He gets it right. He seeks counsel. Today, at the end of the service, there will be some deacons up front. You are welcome to come pray, to seek godly counsel. If God is working on your heart, if God is trying to break the cycle of sin that you find yourself in, seek godly, wise counsel. Don't try to do it on your own. Let's do an action step out of this. Ask yourself, how has God sought to get my attention about things in my life that I need to work on? God wants our attention. Ask yourself, how is God seeking to get my attention? The passage continues, so we'll continue and read it. Verses 10 through 18 will be our our next passage. So let's dig in, starting in verse 10. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. What do we learn in verses 10 through 18? God must be given first place. God must be given first place. This was a specific dream given to a specific person at a specific point in history. So how do we apply it to ourselves? We need to generalize it. And the general principle is that God must be given first place. Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as the walking stick. 
Look at all the mighty things I've done. Actually, if you look at the text, at the way Nebuchadnezzar describes his dream, and you contrast that with the way Daniel describes the dream later, you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar spends an awful lot of time talking about this amazing tree. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't dumb. I think he realized that tree was him. He was self-centered is what he was. And he spends a lot of time describing all of the beauty of this tree. He didn't recognize that God must be given first place. He saw himself as the king of the world, the one who was providing for all, the sovereign over the universe. So let's zoom in just a little bit. In verses 10 through 12, what we see is Nebuchadnezzar had a sphere of influence. And each of you today here has a God-given sphere of influence. God has given you a sphere of influence. People to whom look up to you. People to whom follow you. People to whom you have some level of responsibility. God gives each of us a sphere of influence. And I don't care if you are five years old or 105 years old. You have a sphere of influence. God gives us a responsibility to take care of people. Nebuchadnezzar was no different. His sphere of influence happened to be really big, but it was still a God-given sphere of influence, and God wanted to remind Nebuchadnezzar that in your God-given sphere of influence, God must have first place. We'll look a little bit more at what that looks at here as we go. But since it's a God-given sphere of influence, God has the right to take it away. God has the right to take away anybody's sphere of influence. This is just the reality. God gave it to you, so God has the right to take it from you. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, God gave Adam responsibility. He gave him a sphere of influence. Tend the garden. I've made you in my image. Represent me to creation. That's your sphere of influence, Adam. We could talk throughout Scripture about how God gave different people spheres of influence. He gave David a kingdom. God gave it to them, but God had the right to take it away. And here with Nebuchadnezzar, God had the right to take it away. You see, God's sovereignty means that no how we influence, who we influence. And so God must be given first place in all situations. See, everything comes together, really, in verses 17 and 18. What we see is that Nebuchadnezzar had a privilege, a responsibility, of having a wide area of influence. But God wanted Nebuchadnezzar and all peoples to know that he was sovereign. Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 17 says, So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. Nebuchadnezzar, you have not been using your sphere of influence right. You were put in that position, and you've taken the glory for yourself. You have abused your sphere of influence. And so God is going to act so that all people will know that it is actually God 
who is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar. But you know, we all make this mistake all the time. We tend to take credit for ourselves. We are the walking stick, time and time again. When I was at UNL, and one of my least favorite things to do was to grade essays, because they were awful. But one of the things that, that was really bad, that inevitably would happen, is uh, I'd be reading an essay, I'd be like, these ideas are not your own ideas. Sure, you didn't quote this other paper word for word, but it's clear that you read this paper first and then wrote your essay. And you took the credit as if it was your own ideas. That's called plagiarism. Failure to give credit to where the credit is due. But it's not just in the form of plagiarism. It's not just in the form of, you know, formally, like, claiming something is ours that's not really ours. We do it in all sorts of other places. So what should we do? I want us to evaluate our spheres of influence. Evaluate those whom you have influence and ask is God the one who's given first place? In my sphere of influence, am I giving God first place? What might this look like? And I emphasize the word might because you don't have to do these things, but here's some suggestions. Parents, sometimes try out this phrase. I love you, but Jesus loves you more. It's true. It's absolutely true. Puts God in first place. Managers, maybe you've got some employees who work under you. Pray for your employees. And if you have the opportunity, tell them you did. Ask them how you can pray for them. It's your sphere of influence. Teachers, look for opportunities to point people to the real solution to the problem. Because the real solution to every problem really comes from our Savior. What about just friends? Find opportunities to point to God and invite others to be part of Christian, Christ-centered activities that you're part of. Siblings. One of the most powerful things that a sibling can do is lead their younger sibling to Christ. And it happens more than you would think. Siblings. Every sphere of influence that you have, you can use to point to Christ. Nebuchadnezzar's problem was not that he was a powerful king. That was actually God had given that to him. Nebuchadnezzar's problem was he made it about himself instead of about God. Let's continue on in verses 19 through 27. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having a nesting place in its branches for the birds? Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. 
Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. What can we see here? The punishment for sins has been paid. But the loving father still disciplines. Nebuchadnezzar was going to be disciplined so that he learned that the most high reigns. Today, in our day and age, Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. But our God, as a loving father, at times disciplines us to get our attention, to turn us away from the cycle of sin. Verse 18 is a very interesting verse. None of the wise men, none of them could interpret the dream. Now, this kind of baffles me because I look at it and it's kind of obvious. When you look at what the dream was, it, it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on. Maybe some of the details aren't obvious, but it, it's pretty obvious. I think the wise men could interpret the dream and they were terrified too. Because sometimes... The truth and reality of a situation are a burden. The truth is that God at times is trying to get our attention, and that can be a heavy burden to bear. Daniel was in a terrible spot, a tough spot. Nebuchadnezzar had a problem, and nobody else was willing to tell Nebuchadnezzar about his problem. Here's the reality. In life, as you interact with people, there may come a point where you realize you possess some insight that is a burden because you need to tell somebody, look, the things you're going through are probably a consequence that God's trying to get your attention. He just wants you to focus on him. And that can be a burden. Now, I don't want you going around and kicking everybody's trials and saying, oh, God's getting your attention here. That's not the right application of this passage. But if it is clear to you that God is trying to get someone's attention and that burden is weighing on you, it may be your responsibility to tell the person, hey, is God trying to interrupt you? 
Is he trying to stop the cycle of sin? That's the burden that Daniel had to bear. See, there's an unpopular reality. People don't like to hear this. But the truth, it's found throughout Scripture. I'll show you a couple of passages. The truth is that sometimes God disciplines us in order to change the path that somebody is on. Scripture teaches this all over the place. See, we've fallen for a lie. The lie is that everything bad that ever happens to you is caused by Satan. Not true. As unpopular as that is, it's not true. Sometimes God is trying to get us to knock it off. Again, don't go kicking everybody who's in a trial. But do recognize that sometimes God just wants our attention so that we break the habit of sin. Let's look at Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And don't resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. The author of Hebrews quotes this passage in Hebrews 12 and really expands on it. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 4 all the way through 11, says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems present, sorry, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Sometimes God works to get our attention. Sometimes it hurts. But it is done by a loving Father who has our best interest in mind, who is training us in righteousness. So what do we do with something like this? Back in Daniel, verse 27, Daniel gives some unsolicited advice. The right response to the discipline of the Lord is repentance. I want you to notice something about Daniel's call to repentance. Daniel calls on Nebuchadnezzar, renounce your sins by doing what is right and by being kind to the oppressed. 
why would that be the call that Daniel makes? Nebuchadnezzar's problem is pride. So Daniel calls on Nebuchadnezzar. It's a call to repentance, but repentance is not just merely saying sorry. Repentance is taking action. And the call to repentance that Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, renounce your sins, and your problem is pride. So do the one thing that a proud person would never do and lower yourself to take care of the lowest. That's Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Pride. Break your pride by humbly caring for those lower. So how do we apply this? Well, we need to determine to accept God's discipline in our life instead of hardening ourselves against God's discipline. Here's the thing. If God is trying to get your attention, it's as a loving father. He wants you to take action. Not just say sorry, but take action. Is God trying to drive you to be more faithful? Then talk to someone and ask them to hold you accountable to faithfulness. Is God trying to break a cycle of sin? Then get rid of the situations that allow you that cycle of sin. If it's a cycle where you are looking at things you shouldn't be, get rid of the device. If it's a cycle where you are consuming things you shouldn't consume, clear out your cupboards. If it's a cycle where you don't have time for your devotions, charge your phone in a different room. Find ways to remove the sin. For Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's answer was, renounce your sin and be kind to the oppressed. That's the action. Determine today to accept God's discipline instead of hardening against it. It's a heavy sermon. We don't like talking about sin. But remember, it's a loving father. A loving father who is seeking to guide us to righteous life. We're going to see that Daniel doesn't heed, or sorry, Nebuchadnezzar does not heed Daniel's advice until the discipline gets harsher. Take the steps today to soften yourself to what God is doing in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a loving father. And we trust you in that love. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might submit to the work that you're doing in our hearts. That we might turn to you in love, recognizing that you don't want us to sit idly by in a cycle of sin. Rather, instead, you want us to turn to you, to renounce sin, and to accept what you would have us to do. So I pray 
that you would soften our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.